Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'd like to read verses 1 through 11 in uh, this chapter. Romans chapter 5. The apostle writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Did you see the word exult? We exult, verse 2, end of the verse, in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, we also exult in our tribulations not because of the pain or the difficulty, but because of what it produces. And at the end, verse 11, not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we've received the reconciliation. Are you exulting? We don't use that word very much. The idea is boasting. The idea is great rejoicing. It's not just that your team has won, it's that they've won the championship. But we're not rejoicing in earthly things, per se, though certainly Christ came to earth and gave his life on the earth. We're rejoicing in heavenly things. If you think about this passage, these 11 verses, there's a lot of spiritual truths that have to be apprehended and held by faith. It is through faith that we are justified, verse 1, and apprehending these other truths has to be by faith. But as we do, there's reason for rejoicing. So yes, as Brother Tim began this morning reading that paragraph, we need to get our eyes off the things of this world I had no idea he was going to share that this morning, but something that was on my heart from something I heard this week was a little portion of Pilgrim's Progress where Interpreter and Christiana are looking at a man who is down on his knees with a muckrake in his hand. He's raking up straws and sticks 
dust. But there's a person above him holding a crown out to him, offering him the crown. But he doesn't look up. And he won't look up. And as interpreter explains to Christiana, who wonders at the sight, he says, you have said right. His muckrake shows his carnal mind. And whereas you see him rather give heed to rake up straws and sticks in the dust of the floor than to do what he says that calls to him above with a celestial crown in his hand, it is to show that heaven is but as a fable to some and that things here are counted the only things substantial. That's quite a statement. That people would think that the things here in this world, in this life, are the only things of substance. He says, now, whereas it was also showed you that the man could look no way but downwards, it is to let you know that earthly things, when they are with power upon men's minds, quite carry their hearts away from God. And then Christiana has a great prayer. She says, oh, deliver me from this muckrake. The verse that's quoted is Proverbs 30, verse 8, Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. That prayer, said the interpreter, has lain by till it's almost rusty. Give me not riches is scarce the prayer of one in ten thousand. Straws and sticks and dust with most are the great things now looked after. Christiana and Mercy, who was with her, wept and said, It is, alas, too true. So trade. Trade. Trade your muckrake. Is that what you have in your hand? Is that your focus? Sticks, straw, dust. Who wouldn't trade if they believed the crown were real? But that's what you have to do. I want to encourage you to trade the muckrake for the crown. To look upon what God has done, to rejoice in it, and whether you're a believer and have been for some time or you don't know yet what it means to be a believer, there's something here for everyone. The songwriter said, See the crimson drops outflowing from the Christ upon the tree, while men gaze unmoved, unknowing that his blood sets sinners free. Free from sin. Our condemnation laid on him was paid in blood, precious blood for our salvation, reconciling us to God. Once for all, full satisfaction has the spotless victim made. Now complete the great transaction with his blood, the price is paid. And the Father, having given his dear Son to die for sin, 
Nothing good withholds, and heaven welcomes blood-washed sinners in. And from there, to see that sight. White-robed saints, their voices raising, blessings to the great I Am. Never cease their joyous praising, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. He has purged away transgression, washed our garments in his blood, rent the veil of separation, reconciled our souls to God. Are you reconciled? Are you boasting in your reconciliation? Paul says in verse 11, we exult also in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the means the agency of our reconciliation. It is through Jesus, he says, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And Paul is really writing the gospel. If you've never read Romans through and seen what he's doing, he's writing the gospel. He's describing in chapter 1 and through chapter 3 the need for righteousness. And there's not anyone born into this world except the Lord Jesus who has a native righteousness. Men are not good. Women are not good. Children are not good. As innocent as they may look, they're still sinners born into this world in the line of Adam. Paul comes down to the end of an extended proof that there is a need for righteousness with the statement, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. That's some of the backdrop to the statement that we find in verse 1 of chapter 5. No one is good. Everyone needs saving. God has provided a way. It was true in the Old Testament as well as in the New that the way to come to God is through faith. That's how Abraham came. Abraham was justified when? Not when he received a sign that he belonged to God in the covenant. It was before that. David understood that. Paul argues in Romans chapter 4 that the person who is forgiven has had their sins not reckoned to their account. And as Paul goes on to talk, especially about Abraham in chapter 4, he fully proves that Abraham's faith what was necessary. Not meritorious, but necessary for him to be in right relationship to God. Resting and trusting upon the promise of God. Abraham needed righteousness just like anyone else. David did as well. And when you put your faith in Christ, you are justified. Look at that in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. That's in contrast to works. We're not justified by the things that we do to earn approval with God. We're justified by faith in what God has already done for us through Christ. It's the work of Christ that we rest upon, that we trust in. And because of that, because we've been declared righteous, that's the meaning of justified, we have, verse 1 says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There was before, as this passage goes on to detail, a relationship of hostility. 
a relationship that could be rightly called one of enemies, adversaries. And did you notice that language in the chapter, especially verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son? Enemies, and we'll consider that further, but that was our relationship, but God established peace. He brought enemies together, and the fault was not his, the fault was ours because we were sinners. And that's what's pointed out in verse 6, our circumstance as sinners. We were, verse 6, helpless. We were also, verse 6, ungodly. Somebody might die for a righteous man or a good man, verse 7, but God demonstrates his great love towards us in that while we were sinners, while we were ungodly, while we were enemies, that's when Christ died for us. What a demonstration of love. Why has he justified us? It's because of his grace. It's because of his mercy. It's because of his love. See, the crown is offered. It's offered in love. It's offered to a sinner who does not deserve But we actually sang this morning of the process, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's love? The very last stanza ends with, Bold, I approach the eternal throne to claim the crown through Christ my own. I'm actually claiming that gift of salvation only through Christ. And what a marvelous thing it is to know that God loves me. It is helpful to think what that circumstance was, that I was his enemy, that I was a sinner, that I was ungodly, that I was helpless, remembering all of that and what I deserved in order to really understand and appreciate what God has done for us what God has done for me. I want to zero in on verses 9 through 11 when Paul, after describing the great love of God, describes how we are saved and what we are saved from. Notice verse 9, much more than having been now justified by his blood. That's a reference back to verse 1, justified by faith. That's the instrument. The blood is what affects that cleansing. But then verse 9, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And you might notice, at least in the American Standard, the words of God are in italics because they're not there in the original. So it could be read, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. We are saved from wrath. The wrath of God a very real theme in the book of Romans to this point. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, chapter 1. The wrath of God will be revealed, chapter 2, upon all that do unrighteousness. That wrath, as you look at the scriptures, has a breadth uh, in terms of the doctrine of wrath, where God displays his temporal wrath, the wrath 
against sin, against sinners. There are times when God, because of his righteous wrath, deals with a sinner who directly disobeys. Remember Lot's wife? She'd been given a command. That command was to not look back. Lot and his daughters were given the same command, but she looked back. And God, who saw that act of disobedience, dealt with her. Uzzah, when he reached out and sought to stabilize the ark, God had said no one should touch the ark. And when he did, God took his life. You can certainly see in the flood, you can certainly see in Sodom and Gomorrah, You can see many times in the wilderness as the children of Israel either grumbled against God or sinned directly against those leading them, rebelled against the leadership that God had given them, that God dealt with them in wrath. This is not a very popular doctrine, is it? Wrath. We like to think of God as a God of love. And that's what this chapter is about in part. Verse 8, it is his love. But the very next verse mentions God's wrath. Is God a God of wrath? Of course he is. He communicates that about himself, both through his words and his acts. What is his wrath? Someone defined it as the revulsion of absolute holiness against all that is unholy. See, God isn't acting on a whim. He doesn't get angry at things that don't deserve anger. God actually is the only one who always gets angry for the right reason and controls his anger. He withholds his anger in patience and mercy. When someone repents, God refrains and relents and doesn't pour out his anger. But the idea that God is only a God of love is simply not biblical. It doesn't square with the teaching of Scripture. God has, Romans chapter 1, present wrath that's being poured out in this world. As men substitute idols for the one true God, God deals with them by sentencing them to their own desires. He gives them over to their own lusts, and as they sin... They actually find the consequences for their own sin. That becomes a display of his wrath. God's wrath presently, because of man's idolatry, is being shown when you see a society that is corrupt, sexually corrupt in terms of its relationships, and just read the end of Romans chapter 1, all of the depravity that is shown. That's a nation that is under the wrath of God. Not only because they're doing it, but because... That is their mindset. That's because this is the way they are. God has given them over to that. Why else is God's wrath shown? Well, John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides, present tense, on him. So yes, it is idolatry, refusing to believe the message of the gospel. God's wrath is against those who do not submit to him. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 speaks of 
all of us, and this is not to say that God's wrath is out there. No, I was under his wrath apart from Jesus Christ. By nature, I was a child of wrath because of my disobedience. But there is coming a day, and I'm not speaking of just a 24-hour day, but there is coming a day when the wrath of God will be displayed. The Scripture testifies to it. In fact, just take a page or two over and look at Romans chapter 2. Paul says in verse 4, Romans chapter 2, Do you think lightly of the riches of his, that is God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, comma, what's the consequence? Wrath. Indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. A message of partiality we read in Exodus 23 this morning. God is not partial. And so no one is going to bribe God. What will stand before God is a person's true circumstances, the deeds that they have done, either in keeping his law, which no one has done, or disobeying his law. And if you disobeyed his law, the only way to find refuge from the wrath of God is to find safety in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that future wrath, which is coming for every person, who does not put their trust in Christ, that future wrath will certainly fall on them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, They themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to, idols, uh, to, turn rather to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. It is only Jesus who rescues from that wrath to come. The, the day of wrath in which God pours out his wrath, and then you certainly could say the consequence of that, the eternal consequence of that. And you could read through the book of Revelation and see the wrath of God displayed on planet Earth. But you look at the end of Revelation and you see God's eternal wrath. Revelation 20 then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Moses said in Psalm 90, Who understands the power of your anger? Does anyone? He says, Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Now Moses knew something of the wrath of God. He had seen the wrath of God on the Egyptian army and Pharaoh. He had seen the wrath of God when all of the children of Israel who had gone up to the edge of the promised land and not believed God and so didn't go in, he saw the wrath of God displayed in that generation as person after person after person was dying in the wilderness. I think it's no wonder that he's talking there about the wrath of God. But Moses was asking, who understands the power of that anger? Spurgeon said, good men dread that wrath beyond conception, but they can never ascribe too much terror to it. Bad men are dreadfully convulsed when they awaken to a sense of it, but their horror is not greater than it had need be, for it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Holy Scripture, when it depicts God's wrath against sin, never uses a hyperbole. It would be impossible to exaggerate it. Whatever feelings of pious awe and holy trembling may move the tender heart, it is never too much moved. Apart from other considerations, the great truth of the divine anger, when most powerfully felt, never impresses the mind with a solemnity and excess of the legitimate result of such a contemplation. What the power of God's anger is in hell and what it would be on earth were it not in mercy restrained, no man living can rightly conceive. Modern thinkers rail, Spurgeon says, at Milton and Dante, Bunyan and Baxter for their terrible imagery. But the truth is that no vision of poet or denunciation of holy seer can ever reach the dread height of this great argument, much less go beyond it. The wrath to come has its horrors rather diminished than enhanced in description by the dark lines of human fancy. It baffles words. It leaves imagination far behind. Beware ye that forget God, lest he tear you in pieces and there is none to deliver. God is terrible out of his holy places. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember Korah and his company. Mark well the graves of lust in the wilderness. No, rather, think of the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Who is able to stand against this justly, important word, angry God? Who will dare to tempt the edge of his sword? Be it ours to submit ourselves as dying sinners to this eternal God, even at this moment, command us to the dust and thence to hell. But the wonderful thing about the passage we read here this morning, Romans chapter 5, is that based upon your trust, your belief in Christ, God's declaring you righteous in his sight, you are safe from that wrath. 
you're safe. That horror that, yes, is for all of eternity. Let's not whitewash it. Let's not cut corners or try to trim parts of the Scripture out. It is to all of eternity, but for the one who finds trust in Christ, there is safety. So have you trusted in him? Have you put your refuge in him? Is he your fortress? No wonder, Paul says, that we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ when he saves us from such wrath. One writer said, Men must choose between an exceeding great and eternal weight of glory and an exceeding and eternal weight of wrath. You see, the muckrake has consequences. To never look up and receive that crown, to never look up and receive that gift, is to miss heaven. It's to miss heaven. That's a consequence. But what you don't realize is that you're commanded to believe. This is a command of God. Repent, turn from your sins, put your trust in Jesus Christ. And when a person does that, when a person believes in Jesus Christ, yes, they are justified, they are declared righteous. It is just as if they had never sinned. God makes them his child, welcomes them in, gives them his spirit, which is an earnest or a down payment on the inheritance they'll receive forever with God. Exult. Boast. But if you can't boast turn from your sins and put your trust in Christ. Paul says, much more than having been now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. It is through Jesus, through what God has done through Jesus Christ. I want you to notice in verse 10, he goes on, he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life or in his life. So we're saved from wrath, but we're saved in his life or by his life. Again, just as a reminder, when God calls us enemies, there is a, certainly a, an active sense on our part to that. When we disobeyed God's law, we were acting in hostility towards God. This is not just a matter of being called an enemy and we didn't do anything. No, we were, and we are, until we bow the knee, until we turn to God. But notice, notice what God has done to reconcile us to himself. In the middle of this verse, he says, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. I want you to notice something here, that this is something that God has done through someone of you would say, nearest eternal relation along with the Holy Spirit to God the Father. This is the first time, as I understand, the word son is used in Romans since the beginning of the book. There's a deliberate emphasis on the fact that the person who is our salvation is also the Son of God. That highlights the significance of his love. You can see in verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, the anointed one, died for us. Well, who is that? 
Who is that anointed one that came into this world? This is God's only son. It's a demonstration of his love. So to save you from the wrath, God sent his son, and it is through the death of his son, because his blood was shed, but also by the life of his son that we are saved. Now, what is Paul referring to here? Well, some would suggest that this refers to his earthly bodily life refers to his obedience to God, his conformity to God's laws and his commands. And Jesus certainly was obedient. He was sinless. But beyond his sinless life, he also rose again after he was crucified and died and was buried. And it is in his resurrection life, not just in the life that he lived, but in the resurrection life that we have hope. And if you turn, just keep a finger here, turn over to Hebrews chapter 7, We're saved from wrath. We're not only saved by his blood and by his death, but we're also saved by his life. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The writer says, The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Talking about the Old Testament priesthood. They couldn't continue on because they died. But, verse 24, Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Okay, Jesus is eternal, just like Melchizedek. It's never said that he stopped being a priest. And Jesus is a priest according to that order. Hebrews chapter 7 argues. But in chapter 7, verse 25, notice he says, Therefore, he, Jesus is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives, there it is, his life, to make intercession for them. We tend to think in terms of our salvation, that Christ accomplished what he accomplished on the cross, that he rose again, and our salvation is because of that historical event. And yes, it's true, that's the gospel message. But Jesus lives and he intercedes. And as he lives and intercedes, he's able to save all those who come to God through him. He's able to fully and completely save those who come to God because he makes intercession for them. And that's a part of that work that Christ did. And careful, because we know the work of Christ in one sense is finished, but that he's doing. He's still interceding. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears, Wesley said. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. It is the death of Christ that secures our salvation. It certainly secures our forgiveness. But he rose, Romans chapter 4, for our justification. And he lives to intercede. 
So yes, we're saved by his death. We're also saved by his life. We're saved by the blood that he shed. We're saved by his continuous intercession for us. If you turn back to Romans chapter 5, so there's another reason to rejoice that God has reconciled us through the death of his son, and we are saved in his life, that his life is linked to ours. And then notice in verse 11, he says, not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Saved from wrath, saved in his life or by his life, but also saved by his reconciling us. See, this is God who took the initiative. This is God who in eternity past certainly chose us, but in time rescued us by the work of his Son upon the cross. And Notice the past tense here. It says, through whom, end of the verse, we have now received the reconciliation. That establishing us in right relationship with God was something that God did. It really points back to verse 1 when it says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We who were enemies and at odds with God, hostility, adversaries, not because of anything that God did, but all of because of what we had done. And we were, verse 6, helpless. So this isn't something we could have changed apart from God doing what he did, but he did. And as he did, he reconciled us to himself. He brought us, in the language of Ephesians, near. And we can, in the language of Hebrews, draw near to God through our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't think of a better exposition than 2 Corinthians chapter 5 of this truth. If you turn over there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. How did that reconciliation take place? Verse 18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. This is God who makes us again one with himself. He does it through Christ. And then he gives us that ministry of reconciliation, which is calling others to be reconciled to God. Verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then this critical verse, beautiful verse, verse 21. He made him. That is, the Father made the Son. He took the initiative he is the one who's working all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians. He made him who knew no sin. This was a sinless one. Someone who had never disobeyed God. Someone who had never broken God's law. Someone who had always done what was right. Someone who had always obeyed God even from his heart. Loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. God made that one, notice what it says, to be sin on our behalf. 
The language may seem abstract here, but he's talking about him being a sin-bearer, an offering for sinners. Jesus became a sinless substitute to take the penalty that we deserved. I was the one who broke God's law. I was the one who was God's enemy. I was the one acting in hostility and seeking after other gods, but God took initiative, even though I was helpless to get myself out of that circumstance, he took the initiative and sent his son as an offering for my sin. Why? Look at the rest of the verse. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. One writer said, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. How can it be? How can it be? That God, as the songwriter said, would love a soul like me. Well, it has to be grace, because it's not anything in me. It has to be God's free favor, and that is what it is. My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. No merit of my own, his anger to suppress My only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. And now, for me, he stands. Before the Father's throne, he shows his wounded hands and names me as his own. And how does that all happen? The last stanza of that hymn says, His grace has planned it all. Tis mine but to believe and recognize his work of love and Christ receive. There's the crown. There's the crown. You going to hold on to your muckrake when God has done that? I'm going to say this gently. That's so foolish. It really is wicked. It's wicked. It's wrong. To have such grace and favor offered, but to resist and reject. And it's foolish because what do you have? You have sticks and straw and dust. And beyond that, an eternity of woe. I hope you could say with faith, like the songwriter said in the chorus of that hymn, for me, for me. He died. And for me, he lives. An everlasting life and light he freely gives. Have you taken it? And if you have, are you rejoicing in it? Are you exulting in it? 
I mean, what excites you? What, what gives you joy? If you know the Lord and you know this salvation, there is no, not to say this life isn't difficult, it certainly is a veil of tears. We have sorrows, we have difficulties. But if you know that, your eternity is secure. It can make you rejoice even in prison. Even through the deepest of sorrows, through the valley of tears, you have reason for rejoicing because you know that through that valley, the path that you're heading on is the path, as Bunyan would say, to the celestial city. That's where we end up with the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are by your Holy Spirit at work in this world and even as your word is preached in the hearts of those who hear to convict, to reprove, to convince the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. We certainly have looked at those three themes this morning. And so, Lord, as the one who's been speaking, there's something I cannot do. Given grace to be able to go through these passages, but Lord, they would be empty and worthless without your power behind them and in them and in the hearts of both your people to exult and for sinners to repent. And so open, I pray, we pray, the eyes of the blind. Shine the light of Christ into the hearts of those who are in darkness. And Lord, for us who believe, we pray that the reminder of the gospel would be certainly reason for exaltation and rejoicing, but it would also be reason for stopping and considering whether I too have gotten back down on the ground and picked up that muckrake again. Lord, set our mind on things above. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.